to take out your Bible. I encourage you to bring your Bible, to mark your Bible up, to put comments in your Bible that God can see. If you don't have your Bible, there's one provided for you in the pew. It's the blue pew Bible. And open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We are starting a new sermon series in the, go- in the Gospel of Genesis. How's that? I have na- titled this sermon series, Genesis, the Gospel According to God. Because when most of us read Genesis, we usually don't have the Gospel in mind much at all. Oh, sometimes from here and there. But I want to tell you right now, God had the gospel in mind when he inspired Moses to write these words. Most of us come to Genesis with a whole different set of lenses, a whole different set of questions, don't we? Like, creation, is it a creator or is it evolution? Or, was it six literal days or were the days age? Or were they longer? Or is God repeating himself in Genesis 2? Why didn't he just leave it with Genesis 1? Why is there a second creation? Or whose fault is it, really? Adam or Eve? Or what made Cain's sacrifice unacceptable and Abel's acceptable? Or, come on, did those guys really live 800 and 900 years? Now, was the flood worldwide or was it just that area? And then when we get into chapter 12 and and beyond that, it's about the narrative, the stories. And we get into stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and Jacob, and we read the read this, these stories, as moral do's and don'ts, don't we? We look at Abraham, we go, okay, I'm supposed to listen to God. I'm supposed to obey God when he says to do something. Or don't tell lies like Abraham. Or bad company corrupts good character in Lot. Or, you know what, run from sin like Joseph. Run from sin. Or don't be deceived like Jacob. Come on, use some wisdom and discernment. Or don't show favoritism like Isaac. And then we get to some of these narratives and we're just plain confused over what we're supposed to get from Lot's daughters and Dinah's rape. Gosh, yeah, I'm just going to skip over those. Those are just... So my purpose today is to set the stage for our time in Genesis together. To give us a gospel foundation on how to actually read Genesis. This morning I'm going to ask us to take several steps back in order to get the big picture of Genesis. Showing us that indeed Genesis was inspired as the Apostle John wrote to testify about Jesus. That Genesis is the gospel according to God. And God begins right where we should begin in our study of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 1. And there we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of any gospel conversation 
any gospel conversation is God is sovereign. You want to start at the basic foundation of the gospel? God is sovereign. This is the massive central tenet of chapter 1. It starts with the first sentence and is repeated throughout. If you notice, just look down in, verse, in chapter 1, and God said in verse 3, in verse 6, and God said, in 9, and God said, 14, 20, 24, all these and God said. But also look at what it says in verse 7. And God said, and it was so. Verse 9, and it was so. Verse 15, and it was so. Verse 24, and it was so. Kind of reminds me of if you've seen uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. Anybody seen that movie? If you haven't, you should watch it. It's a good movie. And in that movie, Yul Brenner, a great actor. Yul Brenner is just the man, right? Yul Brenner is the pharaoh, the all-powerful pharaoh. And throughout the movie, he makes fiat commands. And if you remember what he says in the movie, he says, let it be written, let it be so. He was the all-powerful pharaoh. They, they had to do what he commanded. And in the same vein, that's, that's what God is trying to get through to us through the drumbeat of God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's totally in control of everything. That's what the first chapter cries out. So why does God start out the gospel, according to Genesis, with his sovereignty? Why is sovereignty so important to the gospel? Have you ever thought about that? Okay, you know, it's, it's easy to think of God's attributes and not connect them down to the earth, to our hearts maybe, to our actions. Let's think about that for a second. Why does God start the gospel with, I am sovereign? Well, I just want to walk through a couple with you. Consider areas just like prayer. If God is not absolutely sovereign, I hope this prayer makes an impact. God, if you're not sovereign, why am I asking you to do anything? Prayer becomes limpid and, and, and powerless. And, and perhaps in some of your lives... You don't pray enough, you don't pray more, you don't go to the Lord more because of your lack of this doctrine of sovereignty. When you really believe that God is sovereign, my goodness, wouldn't you want to go to him more and more and more? If God is not sovereign, your maturity, your sanctification, your growth as a Christian is really in your hands. You want to grow? It's totally up to you. It's kind of the first half of Philippians 2.12, isn't it? Work out your salvation with fear and tremble. Guys, you got to work really hard and, and, and you got to sweat it out because it's up to you. But no. Verse 13 tells us, For it is God 
who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His sovereignty means something in your growth. If God is not sovereign, here's a biggie. For those of you who are struggling, trials, difficulties, devastations in your life make absolutely no sense. And they won't. They're just awful atrocities in your life if God is not sovereign. Because he, if he is sovereign, he promises, as he says in Romans 8.28, to take that devastation and through his sovereignty do something good with it, really? Yeah. That's why we... That's why we look to God's sovereignty. Now consider the gospel categories such as assurance of your salvation. Without God being sovereign, boy, you better hold on tight. Any of you have this experience with your salvation? Gosh, I've got to hold on tight. My knuckles just cracked because that's how hard you're holding on. Because if I let go, I'm doomed. But because God is sovereign in election, because God finds you because God saves you because he gives you his spirit and because he gives you his promise that he will complete what he has started in your life. If God is not sovereign. We're actually in control of our own salvation. You have to find God. Oh my goodness, Really? I have to find God. I mean, this is the problem, a problem we see with people. I don't know even where to start. Where is truth? What is truth? Gosh, it sounds pretty good over here in the Eastern. Sounds pretty good here with with the Hobbits and Christianity. I like some of the things. And that's why people make a buffet of their religion. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here. That's what I believe. Because they don't even know where to start. They don't know what truth is. It's up to you, even though the Bible declares us as deaf and blind, in bondage, and describes us as dead. How are you supposed to find God when you're spiritually dead? But God is sovereign. And he so loved the world that he sovereignly sent his son to, as it says in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I've come to have the blind, make the blind see and the deaf hear. He has come to free us from the bondage. He has seek out the lost, those who have no idea where they're going or where they came from. And here's the biggie when we talk about Genesis without God being sovereign. The grand plan of redemption is no guarantee. The redemptive plan that we find here the very beginning is no guarantee. His plan, his promise, his blessing through his son, his blueprint for redemption, his seed being passed down through all generations. People of God, if God's sovereignty is not a big theological category in your life, God's redemptive plan that he hatches here is up to chance. I hope it may, I hope it I hope it comes to fruition. You see God's sovereignty is absolutely necessary for God's plan that we see here to come.
John Piper wrote, The doctrine of God's sovereignty is an anchor for the troubled soul, a hope for the praying heart, a stability for fragile faith, a confidence in pursuing the lost, a guarantee of Christ's atonement, a high mystery to humble us in a solid ground for all praise. The first lens we get, we need to understand in the gospel according to Genesis, is his sovereignty. And the second one is obedience. Obedience is necessary. God is sovereign. Obedience is necessary. Take your Bibles and look with me at chapter 2, verses 15 and following. There in chapter 2, we see God taking man and putting him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. What God wants us to know about the gospel here is, in order to have a relationship with him, absolute obedience is necessary. In order to be in God's presence, i.e. have a relationship with him, Absolute obedience is necessary. Adam, this tree, all the other trees, fine. Uh, go for it. This tree, no. Just obey me here. And we will be in wonderful relationship for all eternity. But chapter 2 is crystal clear, isn't it? God requires complete and comprehensive obedience. Flawless rightness. We can also translate that righteousness for a relationship between man and God to happen, both inside the garden and outside the garden. Let me cause a little mental explosion for you. Absolute obedience is necessary for you to have a relationship with God. Now, as I was reminded this week, Tim, as Tim Keller would say, if I left you there, I wouldn't be doing my job. Because that is the truth, that absolute obedience is perfectly necessary. And there's really two forks in the road you can take here. One fork is that most people take and all religions do, other than Christianity, they look at themselves in the law for righteousness. People look to how much and how often they obey the law to gauge their righteousness. They work hard to do good, more good than bad, hopefully. They think that if they're sorry enough, that it counts towards God. That they'll make it to the good place, whatever, they, whatever moniker they put on that. And these people might have good intentions, but they've taken the wrong fork. We see this in the next point, but needs explaining here. God's law is good, but we are not. God's law is good, but we are not. What we fail to understand when we choose this fork in the road is that we're incapable of keeping the law. That's what Paul is saying and trying to explain to us in Romans 7. When he says the law is good, but I am not. I can't keep the law. 
He says it like this. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. No. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. And here's the key. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every form of covetousness. I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life, the law is good, intended to bring life, actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the command, and listen to this, deceived me. Gosh, it's powerful. And through the command, put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. People, if you're here and you have in your mind, I just have to obey God enough to be saved, you're deceived. There's a spiritual deception going on there. That's what Paul is saying. Sin deceives you into thinking that works, doing good, obedience gets you into a relationship with God. We're deceived into thinking that and we forget James 2 that says, listen, if, if, if this is your fork in the road, you have to keep all the law and if you slip up on one part of that law, one thing, thought, word, or deed, you're guilty of it all. We forget that. We kind of read over that in our works righteousness and we go, oh, well, no big deal. It's a big deal. If you can keep your mind, body, and tongue in check perfectly your entire life, if you think you can do that, there's a a deception going on there. But here's another fork. In the couple weeks, we're going to be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Protesting something. Protesting works righteousness. And the battle cry of the Reformation was faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. Part of what through Christ alone means is that it's through his perfect obedience. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. He obeyed the law. He was the only one. So both inside the garden and outside the garden, obedience is necessary. God doesn't change. But Christ fulfilled that. And part of what we mean by trusting Christ, when we say, have you trusted Christ? Part of what we're saying there is, have you trusted Christ's perfect obedience and not your trying to obey? That's part of what we're saying there. That's part of the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ is his active obedience on our part. Martin Luther said, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me. We have to remember that. The third gospel lens Genesis gives us is... Man is depraved. And I alluded to this earlier. Man is depraved. 
This is what we see in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Here we see Eve, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable to gain wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Here we're given a window into the first sin, the first disobedience of man. That disobedience that that causes you and me to sin. That original sin. Original sin does not mean the first sin that I just read. Original sin means the, the sinful nature that we all have because of what we just read here. Because Adam, our, our federal head, disobeyed. We are born with a nature of disobedience. That is our nature. Anybody here ever read uh, Roald Dahl's uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox or seen the movie? They made it into a movie recently, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's a story about a crafty fox who steals food from farmers. And earlier in their life together, he and his wife, when they started having kids, Mr. Fox promised Mrs. Fox that he would stop stealing because it was so dangerous. He could die. So Mrs. Fox said, promise me you will stop stealing. And if you see the movie or read the book, you see that he really doesn't stop stealing. He continues to steal. And 12 years go by and his wife finally catches him. Fox years. Finally catches him. And she says, 12 years ago, you made me a promise. We were caged inside that fox trap that if we survived, you would never steal another chicken, goose, turkey, or duck again. And I believed you. She starts crying at this point and said, why did you lie to me? Do you know what Mr. Fox's answer is? Because I'm a wild animal. His wife counters, but you're also a husband and a father. Mr. Fox says, I'm just trying to tell you the truth about myself. He can't help it. He's a wild animal. He's just telling the truth. And the truth about me and the truth about you is that you can't help sinning. You can't help it. It's not funny, but it's just, we just can't help it. That's our nature. We sin. We disobey. We're corrupt. We, we tend toward sin in all we do. We see this worked out immediately in Genesis chapter 4, don't we? Where Cain, his anger because his, his sacrifice wasn't received well, his, his anger causes him to say, hey, hey brother, Let's go out to the field and have, have a talk or play ball or whatever he said. And he gets him out there and he kills him. His anger and envy towards his brother leads him to murder. And we see this being worked at, this depravity, this sin nature throughout the rest of Genesis, don't we? Handed down from generation to generation. Cain killed one. We see at the end of chapter 4 that one of his descendants, Lamech, wants to kill 77 people. So we see it expanding. Then we see Noah. He's a righteous man, right? 
Good guy. Drunk. At the end. See, Abraham lying. Not once, but twice. Same lie. And none of us experience that, right? Same sin over and over again. Sarah, faithlessness. There's no way. Okay, yeah, God is sovereign, but I can't have a baby. I'm beyond. Lot's tolerance of sin around him. Lot's lustful daughters that we talked about earlier. Jacob's deception and cowardice. Judah's adultery. Tamar's trickery. Joseph's hubris. Brothers, bow down to me. Not to mention his brother, the brother's hatred of Joseph. Albert Einstein said, the real problem is in the hearts and minds of men. By the way, this is coming from, I believe, somebody who didn't believe in Christ. The real problem is in the heart of minds and men. It's not a problem of physics or ethics. He says it's easier to denature plutonium than to denounce the evil spirit within men. You and I are no different. When we read those stories, that's one of the things that you'll hear over and over again over the next months. We are just like Abraham. We are just like Jacob. We are just like Lot's daughters. We are just like fill in the blank. It's one of the major teachings. That depravity is why the world is in such a state it's in. Why nations war. And why genocide happens. Why, why there's civil unrest and political discord And on a personal level, why we, you and I, hate and judge. Why you and I gossip and laugh at crude jokes. And sadly, because we're depraved and sinful and tend towards sin, that's what explodes churches. I bet everyone in this room has either been part of or know a friend that's been part of a church that's just imploded or exploded. That's because of sin. See, depravity is part of our nature. We can't help sinning. We are Mr. Fox. (laughs) And the bad news in Genesis gets just a little worse, actually. Because God judges sin. God is sovereign. God requires absolute and perfect obedience. We are incapable of obeying because of our depravity and the payment of sin is death. Look, turn with me to chapter 6, starting in verse 6, five, starting in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and every inclination of their thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from the earth whom I have created, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Downstairs in the nursery is a wonderful painting of the animals coming out of the ark. I want to Thank Marty years ago for painting that. It's beautiful. I encourage you to go down and look at it after the service. As a matter of fact, even uh, Winnie Smart, who passed uh, last week, 
She was an amazing artist. She even went down and looked at it when she was here one time and came up and told Marty, wow, that is amazing. And it is. It's beautiful. But have you ever stopped to ponder what we're looking at? Here are the only living things left on earth after God's judgment. Think about it. That's God's judgment on sin. There's only six human beings left, or eight human beings left on earth. And the rest died in a horrifying way. One of my artists that I admire greatly, as you, some of you know, is Gustave Doré. And he did some pen and inks depicting the God's judgment in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And here, up on the screen, you can see he did a pen and ink, pen and ink depicting the last rock to be covered by the judgment waters. And there's a tiger with her family of cubs clinging to the rock. And it also just picks a couple that's pushing their children up onto the rock, sacrificing themselves, trying to save their children. Still others clinging to the rock and being pulled under by the waves. And still others floating around them, already dead. He did another one of the post Ararat, where the ark comes to rest on Ararat. And if you look down below, the focus, one of the focus of this painting is the bodies. The dead and putrefying bodies that are left after the waters recede. The flood is ghastly. It holds for us all to see how God feels about sin. God hates sin. God judges sin. That's, that's a, he takes chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, four precious chapters to help us understand this. And that judgment is on each and every person because we sin. The flood holds high what each of us deserve. Death. From the very beginning, God is telling us the wages of sin is death. You don't have to wait until the book of Romans is written to know that. The flood tells it. The wages of sin is death. From the plagues to the famines to being cast out from the garden, to being cast out from the promised land, from the flood to Sodom and Gomorrah, God must and will judge sin. And he'll judge each person accordingly. Just as harshly, just as horrendously. The wages of your sin, the wages of my sin, is that horrendous death. God does not change. We like to change him and say, well, he's changed over the millennia. God does not change. He does not change his mind about his judgment on sin, but he also does not change his mind about the redemption plan he has in mind. And that's the beauty. God has a plan of redemption. I'd like you to look at this Gustave Doré 
painting one more time. And yes, you see the devastation below, but you also see the ark above, don't you? And I think the ark gives us a clue as to God's redemptive plan, how he was going to be perfectly just and judge and be faithful to his promise. Look how he painted the ark. Anybody notice anything? Beams of light coming off of it. Now that could be because he, he thinks the sun is coming up and back, and that's, that's a perfectly fine interpretation of this. Or that the ark is somehow holy because you know that's how they depicted it. Or Gustave Doré, an artist of that age, would many times put beams of light coming off of something or someone when they wanted to indicate divinity. Now, I don't know where Gustave Doré was with the Lord. I really don't. And whether he intended it this way or not. But I know God intended it this way. The ark is intended to give us a clue as to how God was going to be perfectly just in his judgment on sin, just as harsh, yet bring his plan to perfection. Jesus is our ark. To survive through God's judgment on our sin, we need to be found in Christ. It's interesting, when we were reading Philippians in Sunday school today, Paul even gives a a nod to this when he says, What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul got it. I need If I'm going to get through the judgment waters that God has towards my sin, I need to be in Christ. Just like Noah and his family were in the ark and got through. The gospel according to Genesis is that sin requires an atoning sacrifice. And you know what? Christ is the acceptable sacrifice that is prefigured in Abel's sacrifice. The gospel according to Genesis is we each need a substitute to die in our place. And you know what? In Genesis, God provides a clue to that. When Isaac is on the altar and Abraham's just about to kill him and there's a ram provided in the thicket. The gospel according to Genesis is there's no way for us to get God, but Christ is our Jacob's ladder. The gospel according to Genesis is we cannot save ourselves and build a tower to God. We need Christ, a Savior who will humble himself and come to us. The gospel according to Genesis is that we are just like the patriarchs, just like the liars and cheaters and swindlers and killers. We need Christ, a better Abraham, a better Isaac, a better Jacob who never faltered, never failed, never sinned. The gospel according to Genesis is we don't need a Joseph to save us from our food starvation. We need a Savior. We need Christ, the bread of life, to save us from our spiritual starvation. The gospel according to Genesis is God has promised long, long, long ago 
to take our punishment for sin. He is that smoking fire pot who passed between the severed animals and promised, if anybody disobeys, I'll take the hit. God had a plan from the very beginning to provide salvation. And we're going to see this over and over again in Genesis as we look at the gospel according to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you will help me as I endeavor to preach to your people over these next months through your book, Genesis. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we...